The following podcast is brought to you by the Santa Monica College Associates, the SMC Associates, enhancing student excellence. Hey, how are you? Good, uh, good morning to everybody. Thank you for coming. My name is Jim Crusoe, and the person who ordinarily puts on these programs, Hari Vishnawanda, it's his karma that he is stuck in traffic <laughs> this morning. <laughs> So it's my privilege then to introduce Monona Wally. Uh, I've known Monona for upwards of 20 years as a friend and as um, a student, uh, but mostly as a friend, but, and lately, or not lately, but as an admirer as well. Uh, Monona writes uh, short stories. She writes memoir, and uh, her novel is called My Blue Skin Lover. Um, what can I say? The thing that is most interesting to me about her work is the, is a kind of a blend between memoir and fiction and myth. Um, I don't know anyone who works exactly the way that Manona does. Um, she's a wonderful person and a wonderful writer. There's no one I admire more. Will you join me in welcoming Manona Wally? I feel like I should be giving a self-help seminar rather than. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jim, for the stepping in for Hari. I'm, I'm sure he's um, uh, I am sorry to have missed his introduction personally. I hear they're quite raucous. Um, <laughs> Uh, anyway, thank you all for coming, and I, I am really honored to be part of this literary series and this lineup. Um, you know, it's uh, I'm a teacher here, but uh, I am a longtime student here also. And I, as Jim said, I, I actually signed up for his beginning writing class in the 80s, and um, it, it really changed my life. It, I discovered that writing fiction was my true calling, and, um, and the, uh, I still go to this class today. I fortunately advanced to the advanced writing class, um, but it really is um, one of the true pleasures of my writing life. And if you're a creative writing student or you have interest in creative writing, I highly recommend you take his class. It's, it's a real, one of the real treasures of Santa Monica College. Um, one of the things Jim said in that beginning writing class is that it would take 10 years to learn how to write well. So I had just finished my, I had just finished five years getting my MFA in film. And I walk into this class and he said that, and I was like, no way am I gonna spend 10 years learning how to write. And um, lo and behold, I jumped into a novel, writing a novel in that class. And it took me 10 years to write that novel. And I think I really learned how to write, writing that novel. Um, I, uh, I, did, I never published it. I tried. I didn't get it published. Um, and I think a lot of writers probably have 
unpublished work and um, in, hidden in their drawers that they don't like to maybe admit are there. But what it did, writing that book, really helped me launch um, this book that I'm going to read from my Blue Skin Lover. And um, so when I started my Blue Skin Lover, I started it sort of at a whole different level um, than I would have been able to had I started it, you know, 10 years previously. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit from this novel, and since we're in an academic setting, I thought, and part of the novel takes place in academia, um, I thought I would read a couple of those chapters, and then another chapter that's um, a little racier, shall we say. Um, so the main character, just to, to back, give you some background, the main character in this novel is Anjali Mehta. She's 32 years old. She's married to a British guy who's a very ambitious stockbroker on Wall Street. And she calls him Zoo. That's her nickname. You'll see, she has nicknames for a lot of people in this book. Um, the novel takes place in Manhattan. And the only other thing maybe I should mention is the way this novel is launched, the story is launched, is that she comes across a woman on the street who's having a heart attack. And she's the only one who sort of stops to help this woman. Other people are there, but nobody wants to help. And this woman is sort of a fixture on the street. If you, you know, in Manhattan, how people sell stuff on the street, like hats and trinkets and things. So this woman is a fixture, and, and Anjali stops, and, and she's afraid this woman is going to die. And so she just starts praying to Shiva, and she's never really prayed before, but she prays to the Hindu god Shiva. And, um, and we'll be hearing more about Shiva as I read, but uh, he's the Hindu god of life and death. And she prays and says, please don't let this woman die, and then... Shortly thereafter, a man shows up who's wearing a blue baseball cap, and there's something very mysterious about this man. He's, she can't place his ethnicity. He smells like flowers. He's got long hair. He's very beautiful to look at, but he helps. Um, he gets Anjali to help administer CPR, and the woman actually um, survives. The MTs arrive, and etc. And, uh, and actually this woman becomes a character in the novel. But anyway, that's how the novel is launched, that Anjali's left with a very strange feeling about this person who came to help her. So I'm going to read a bit. Okay. Zhu has Wall Street. That's her husband, Zhu. I have my den at Columbia U, dust-laden and graced with a slab of filtered noonday sun. Not every PhD hopeful has this. I seem to breathe easier as soon as I'm here, despite the dank air and the clutter. A notice taped to the door of my office. 
The familiar handwriting of my boss, Dr. Ellen Dickey, Sanskrit scholar, chair of the Department of World Religions. I call her Duck. She wants to see me as soon as I get in. Duck has hired me, classical Sanskrit scholar, thank you, Papa, for my early start, to help her tackle words written thousands of years ago. She says my Sanskrit is better than hers. I feel nervous walking down the hall and up the flight of stairs to her office. What could it be? Is she going to fire me? It is true I've been late on a couple translations, and the end of my marathon run for the PhD is nowhere in sight. I, I hear voices in her office, and I can see the shadowy, out-of-focus figure of someone through the old model glass of her office door. I knock tepidly. The door opens, and it is Vanderow. That's her thesis advisor. My stomach lurches. Duck is sitting at her desk. I would have much preferred Duck to be my advisor, but the department wouldn't allow it because I work for her. Too much conflict of interest. They both look at me in a way that suggests I might have been the subject of their conversation. Do you want to tell her or should I? Duck asks Vanderow. Go ahead, Vanderow says. It's your party. We got the grant, Duck says, and she's out of her chair and sashaying her hips and waving her arms in the air and jumping up and down like a prize-winning contestant on television. This is why I love her. Wow, that's fantastic. I wonder if Vanderow isn't a bit jealous. They have an old rivalry. The grant means Duck will be able to finish her book and continue to pay me, I hope. I love Duck because she's been around a long time. She knows the academic wor world, and she knows Sanskrit and Greek and Latin and Pali, and also has dabbled in ancient Egyptian. She loves the ancient world the way people love their children. She could care less about the inequality of the pay scale at the university or the failure of the world market or the negligent stewardship of the earth. She's only interested in cutting a wide swath through ancient thinking. She's drawn to language and meaning, and she's a fantastic teacher because she makes the old world words come to life as if they were written yesterday. She would like people to know that Hinduism is not just about day-glow gods prancing about on lions with more arms and legs than octopi. She has even made a style out of her quilted wool skirts and heavy tights. She waddles, which is why I call her Duck. Dr. Hugh Vanderow is another beast altogether. His unbridled passion is solely for himself. Duck suggests we go out to lunch to celebrate. Vandero says he has a meeting with the dean and won't be able to make lunch. Still trying to get my job, Duck says. No, actually, I'm trying to get his job, Vandero says. We all laugh. Someday, I too am supposed to learn how to navigate the treacherous political waters of academia. Ellen and I were just discussing the progress of your thesis, Vanderow says. I feel my heart muscle tighten up, my jaw clenched. I've scheduled you to defend by May. 
He has significant eyebrows and a famous patrician nose, but it is his height and the assuming way he cocks his head that is intimidating. When he talks, he intones. He stands over me by a good eight inches. Is there any reason you can't meet that deadline, he asks. I had planned on a July defense, but I know there is no excuse under the sun that would sound anything other than lame. And nine more months following on four years is more of a gift than a deadline. I think I can, or you think, or you will. Commit. It's the only way. Yes, Hugh is right, Duck says. I commit, I say. The subject of my PhD is mysticism and literature and religious belief as revealed through the life and writings of the mystic Virashaiva poets and saints of South India from the 12th century, Shiva worshipers. I must illuminate the poetry of mysticism and the worldview of the saints, heretical, and also make a mark on the study of religious literature. Vandero, Greek and Byzantine scholar, says a PhD that simply illuminates a group of poets is not going to be sufficient. I must put them in the context of soteriological theory and modern scholarly thinking about mysticism. I must give scientific data and use methodological reasoning. Vandero tells me he wants to see an action plan on his desk by afternoon. He wants to see the introduction next week and chapters on a regular basis. I nod. Do it, Duck says. I can up you on the grant if you have your doctorate. Done, I say, as much to convince myself. During the past four years, others have mastered brain surgery and aced the bar exam, and I'm still wrestling with a bunch of poets. I need those translations, Duck says. This last set was excellent. You do have a way with language. I bask in her praise. It's nice to have Van der Rohe hear it, too. I pause at the door before telling, before leaving, to tell them about my rescue operation on the street. I mention how I prayed to Shiva. I know Duck at least will find this interesting. Imagine a statistical analysis of how many prayers have been offered and how many have actually been answered. Now that would be worthy of a big fat grant, Van der Rohe says. Shiva's not a bad choice, Duck says. God of life and death, Maybe he loves death a little too much. I want to tell her, no, not in this case. I don't believe so. I think he stepped in on the side of life. But she lowers her glasses on her nose and squints up at her computer screen, which is just dinged to let her know an email has come in. Back in my office, I take one look and wince. Books are piled alongside my computer, various incarnations of thesis chapters everywhere, notes on notes taped on the walls. I click on the chapter titled The Divine Lover. It's where I left off last week. It's a small chapter buried in my thesis about the young saint and mystic poet Akka Mahadevi. Akka means big sister, Mahadevi means huge goddess. 
but she was not a goddess, just a young girl infatuated with God, with Shiva. She has given me so many problems, this little saint. Her story is peculiar. She wasn't after social reform, just love. I first heard of her story from my father, who had grown up with tales of the saints' lives and learned their poetry. His native tongue, Kannada, was theirs. But of all the saints, Akka Mahadevi was one of the most beloved. Vandero would probably have me cut this chapter from the thesis, but I feel an odd attachment to her, perhaps because my father always spoke so affectionately about her. She was born in the dust of South India to a farmer's backbent wife, thin and threadbare folk living off the scarce bounty of the land. At 10, she found a guru who initiated her into Shiva worship. But when she was just 12, a local king saw her and fell for her. She already had a reputation as a village beauty. He wanted to marry her. Powerless and penniless, her parents could not refuse. Akka was handed over. A bride at 13, she became a royal queen. She was forced to fulfill all that was asked of her in the earthly world of husbands and palaces. But what of Shiva, her true love? She refused to give him up. She spent hours in the temple praying to her true lord. Her jealous husband, the king, demanded she choose. He would not share his bed, me or him, him. Akash seized the moment and ran from the palace. All of 16 now, she abandoned village and home, mother and father, wandered barefoot, naked, naked, dressed only in the covering of her long black hair. Scorn, defiant, disgrace, that's when she wrote her love poems. Her name for Shiva was My Lord, White as Jasmine. Vandero's not interested in love poetry. He wants facts and analysis and how they lead to social transformation. I start typing away on my computer, retooling the chapter. There was no feminist movement to argue against child marriage, no one to root for a teenage girl who simply would not obey the rules. Who does she turn to? One of the most powerful gods in the pantheon, Shiva. Shiva, who can reduce the god of love to ashes. Shiva, who swallows an ocean of poison in order to save the world, and in so doing gains nothing more than a blue stain on his neck. If, Shiva, if Akka can get Shiva to take her as his bride, she will be liberated from those who would have her soul caged by a feudal king, spared from the constant ballooning of her womb, with countless suckling children, left to grow withered and old in the tides of desert sand. So she sets off on a journey of her own making, bold young thing, blessed with the gift of verse. It's a story of pure love, but also a story of rebellion. I read Akka's other poems. I rest on one. I'm turned upside down. The breeze is on fire. The moonlight burns me like a hot sun. Like the tax collector, 
my work is never ending. Please, friend, let him know. Bring him here, my lord, white as jasmine. He is angry that we are two. A sudden heat rises in me as I read the poem. The fire of her sexual longing. What is the boundary between what the heart desires and what the body desires? The male poets don't write of sexual love, of course. That is what makes her different, important. The lively eyes, the lift body of the blue-capped man comes to me. I feel Akka's thirst inside me, a mystery to me, that love of the divine, a puzzle I will have to solve if I ever hope to finish this thing. I feel the warm breath of his eyes again, and then I feel immediate guilt, shame. The 12th century seems not that long ago. So I'm going to skip a little bit. Um, she, she goes to this party with her husband. It's a big corporate affair, Wall Street affair, and he's really amped because he wants to get a promotion. Um, when we return home, Zoo takes me in his arms near the kitchen sink where we are filling our glasses of water to take to bed. He undresses me in the bedroom until I am wearing my brown suit, head to toe. His adrenaline is pumped. His desire for me stirs my own, and I take his suit of white into me. I want to give him pleasure, and I want him to think of mine. I grasp his shoulders, and he crouches over me like a predatory animal that wants to eat me alive. With his quick, hard thrusts, I can feel the hunger in him. But I don't want his hunger tonight. I want tenderness and the slow melt of time. Zoo is by my side, asleep now, making peaceful animal sounds that shift with each breath. The clock glows midnight. I could work on my dissertation. I should work on the chapter on Akka. She rejected one life to find another, wandered naked and exposed, driven by a singular vision of Shiva, the eternal lover, erotic and ascetic, half this, half that. More and more I have a glimmer into the workings of her soul. I break through my inertia, wrap up in my robe, steal out of bed, replace the covers on the gently sleeping giant, put water on for tea, and dig Akka's poems from my backpack. By the small light of the kitchen I read, better than joy of parting after having met is, oh my dear, the joy of meeting after parting for a while. I cannot for a moment live apart when he is out of sight. When shall I taste the joy of parting from my Lord, white as jasmine, yet never more to part? I'm puzzled. How can there be joy in parting? I look again at her words. Parting can have so many meanings. It can be the physical act of leaving or the metaphysical, I suppose. Still, either way, wouldn't there be pain in that for her? Where does the joy come from? I feel rising panic, the deadline. This should be so easy. Help, help. Then no sooner do I wish it 
and he comes. He enters the room tiptoeing. His eyes dart around like a thief, like he is up and he knows it. I watch him carefully. He comes closer. I see the dark blue stain on his neck, like a patch of spilled ink, the stain from swallowing the poison that saved the world. I want so badly to touch it. He takes my hand. His skin is luxuriously soft and moist, as if he has been birthed just then. He pulls me from the desk. He throws his tiger skin on the floor and lays himself down. Every naked muscle gleams with strength. He pulls me on top of him. The heavy perfume of all the flower garlands is intoxicating. I can hardly resist. I touch the stain. I wonder if I were to prick it with my fingernail, would the poison spurt out and would that then end existence? He licks me and it feels like a flame is rising up my neck and across my cheek. His cobra snakes up my leg. I am upside down with desire and I want to devour him. My breasts are screaming if my tongue is not. He enters me and I feel the blue heat spread in gentle waves through my loins, through the layers of my belly and over my breasts. I expose myself to ecstasy and when it comes, I'm in a great wilderness. Beasts have been set free. My own voice is musical and a great many languages are being spoken at once. A songbird outpouring, multi-throated, the taste is sweet and spicy. The light is insanely blue and lovely. It sparkles like the ocean under the sun and bounces off his body. And I don't know where it comes from. It's just there like a bat warm bath of light. As our bodies separate, I feel incredible joy. My eyes flutter open. I'm on the sofa. Did I doze off? How did I get here? I look around. My papers are as I left them on the kitchen table. I must have walked over to the sofa to lie down. At the kitchen table, I stare down at the page, at the poem I've been working on, and then I see it. She is referring to that moment of separating after making love, the joy of that. Didn't I just feel that? It rises in me again like a balloon. I peck away on my computer and compose an academic language, but with the dream alive in me. Akka gives me plenty of evidence to argue the case for transcendence by the mystic poet. She has made Shiva a lover, as real as any flesh and blood one. And by doing so, she has obliterated boundaries between human and God. I can argue how these complicated feelings of sexual and metaphysical love cannot be held within the confines of orthodox religion. How syntactically speaking, the word parting can contain multiple layers of meaning. Even Van der Rohe might approve of that. It is 1.30 before I tuck myself back into bed, worn and exhausted, mystified. What just happened? Zoo's arms are flung apart, his legs straddle either end of the bed, having taken advantage of my absence. I gently shove him over. 
I'm ashamed for my paltry passion, for the love poetry I can't write for Zoo. I'm going to stop reading there. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, before um, getting to question and answers, I thought I would just talk a little bit about where the ideas came from for this novel and some of the things I learned writing it, in the process of writing it. Um, so, the, as, as she relates in the story about how she hears about this poet from her father, that was how I heard about the poet from my father, who uh, also was from South India. And back when I was a filmmaker, he had said, you should make a film about this poet. She, this is a remarkable life story. And you can imagine filmically this, of this young girl wandering around South India with just her hair covering her. Would have been a great visual image. So I did write a treatment, but never made the movie. But then... When I was thinking about this book, um, that story came back to me, and it really made me ask this question, what would that look like if that happened today? If somebody took the god Shiva as their lover in Manhattan and, uh, and tried to really abandon their life as they knew it, and, and just devote themselves to this divine lover. So that was really the impetus for writing the book, was, was this question. And, um, and then um, another connection was the poetry was translated by uh, the South Indian scholar A.K. Ramanujan, who was also happened to be a friend of our family, and he would and his wife would come over a lot when I was growing up. And I, of course, was too young at that time to sort of appreciate, but when my father gave me the book of his translations of this poetry, I was like so struck by, you know, there was like a real sense of, um, beyond just the language being so beautiful, but you could feel the love that she had for Shiva, but, it, but also the sexual longing. And that was really interesting to me. And I, and I knew I had to somehow work that into the story, into Anjali's story. Um, and then another thing that happened was I read this book, Ka, which is by an Italian scholar, Roberto Colasso, and it's a retelling of Hindu mythology. And he has a chapter on Shiva and his wife Parvati. And I'm reading it, and I'm going, oh, my God, this is so erotic. What is going on here? I had never, you don't think of the gods in these sort of, um, you know, they're gods. They're up there taking care of us or something. But... In Hindu mythology, the gods are very human. They're li actually like adult children. They're always doing naughty things. And, and so it sort of also kind of challenged me reading this version to think about, you know, how am I actually going to write about this god? And, um, and, it, and it was another challenge for me because I hate 
I hate talking about sex. I hate writing about sex. I hate watching sex in movies. I'm really a prude. And so the thought that I was going to have to somehow create this erotic, godlike figure in my novel, I just took it on as a challenge. And actually, it kind of became fun. Um, and then another thing that um, this whole conflict with Van der Rohe, the thesis advisor, and this, you know, he's insisting that this, her PhD be very specific. And it was only after I wrote it that I kind of realized that growing up, my father is a physicist. My mother started to study linguists, linguistics in her 40s. And we would have these arguments at the dinner table where my father would say, you know, this is not a science. It's whatever it is, but it's not a science. Oh, sorry. Um, and, and my father would say, in order for, you know, if you're going to study the theories of Chomsky and say that language is innate and you need a hypothesis, you need experimental exp data, you need, you need to prove this. And so these arguments would go on. I know it sounds weird, but there would be these arguments growing up. And I realized that I sort of translated that into this book in the sense of I was interested in the question, or Anjali is interested in the question of what is knowledge? How do we arrive at knowledge? And her experience with the god allows her to open up to a different kind of knowledge, you know, the knowledge of the imagination, the knowledge of um, through, the phys through the physical encounters. I mean, she just starts to understand the story of this 12th century saint in a different kind of way. And then she has to figure out, you know, in this battle with Van der Rohe, how to... Um, how to uh, really, you know, make that work for her. Um, so I guess, um, I, you know, I remember hearing years ago uh, this writer say um, that with your first novel, you throw everything in it. You, you, have like, you take all these risks. You have nothing to lose. And even though this is not, you know, my t first novel technically, I kind of did that, but then I had to figure out how to make all of this stuff work. And um, that was, uh, I think, one of the things, for a long time I thought this was a novel about a young woman's spiritual awakening. And it took me a while, many drafts, to figure out it's actually a novel about a woman taking control of her own destiny. And once I had figured that out, somehow all these other pieces sort of fell into place for the novel. Um, so I um, want to say I have, I have six things I want to share. I learned a whole ton of stuff, but six things in particular that I think I learned um, and, and carry me forward as I continue to write. But... One of the first things was to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. 
And um, I, I think when you start a novel, it's sort of like jumping off a tanker into the ocean. You just think you're drowning all the time. And you don't know where you're going. And you, I think just getting used to that feeling and, and feeling like it's okay, you'll figure it out, somehow you'll, you'll get to shore, um, it was something. I, I'm much more trusting of that process. The second thing is that it's, it's really hard to tell a good story, to actually tell a story where you create a framework for it but you have to make that framework disappear and make it feel like that story is organic, that, think, that, things, that things that happen to your character and the ways that, that you, your character evolves in the course of the story has to feel kind of organic. And so that process of storytelling, I think, is, is really hard. It's really challenging. Um, and, and I, I think there's a lot of strategies. I think modern novels tend to be much more work stories in fragments. That's a gross generalization, but anyway, it's just, it was an interesting for me to try and figure out how to make it work as a story. Um, the other thing, uh, the third thing was, I think the best writing happens when um, you can go back and forth from your subconscious mind to your conscious mind. And some of the best surprises happen for me in writing when uh, my subconscious mind is at work and I, I allow things to surprise me. But then I need my analytical mind to sort of step in and figure out how to make this stuff work. Um, the fourth thing is um, you have to let things happen to your character that you would never want to happen to yourself in real life. And that was hard because, um, you know, she does, because I asked this question, what would happen, I did have to let this character really take this um, encounter with the blue skin lover to a much more extreme level. It couldn't stay a, a pretty little dream. And, and I had to let her go crazy. And that was hard to do. And it took me a long time and a lot of drafts to sort of work up the courage to let things happen to her that seemed like so out of the realm of possibility. Um, the Fifth thing is um, to have faith in the particular strangeness of the story you're telling. I would say this is a really strange little story, and I really, as I was writing it, I never thought that, you know, I didn't know who would like it. I was just writing it. I wasn't worried about who the audience. I just felt compelled to write it. And so one of the really, really nice surprises um, when I published the book was finding out that people did relate to the story. And I think my favorite story of that is my, there was a friend of my parents, he's 90 years old, he's a classical pianist. He read the book and he, he called me, I mean like he's left several messages, like he just, kept wanting to talk to me and tell me how much the book meant to him. 
And I don't think I could have imagined, you know, ever that somebody who like that um, could relate to this book. So I think that idea of having faith in whatever story it is that you you feel compelled to tell was was an important lesson to me. And then the final thing, which I tell my students, um, is to remember to have fun when you write. Um, I, that sounds silly, but um, somehow it 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 is something that when you sit down to write, I try and remind myself, how can I have fun with this? Why? How can I not make this just torture? Um, so. That's it. That's all I have to say. I'm really happy to ha answer any questions, and I just want to thank all of you for coming out today. Yeah, yeah, in the back. I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Hello. My name is Nathaniel Jones. I'm a new published author, and uh, I was wondering, do you have a personal literary agent? Do I have a personal literary I, You know, I don't at the moment. I had someone for a while with this book, and she did send it out, and, um, and then she signed, kind of dropped the ball on it because she was writing her own book. And then since then, I, I haven't had a literary agent. So she, wasn't, she, she didn't fare out? She didn't bear it. No, no. How did you get her? What what process you took to get her? So the, I'm actually going through this process again. So the process really, I think, the best advice I've heard is find somebody, find books that you like, and see who is the agent for those books. Okay. And and are somewhat in the same vein as what you're doing. All right. And, and see, usually authors will acknowledge the agent. And, and that's a good starting place. And then just send them a letter and say, here's, what, here's who I am, here's what my book is about. Okay, that's Would you be advice. interested Thank in you, reading it? Yeah. Yeah. The name of my book? My Blue Skin Lover. Nice. Well, good luck with it. So did you, did you ever have to give CPR to anybody, or is this just something you made up for the character to take place? I'm in the sorry, story? I do I what? Did you ever have to give CPR to anybody, or was this something oh. you made up for the character for the story? Well, that too, I, I I didn't have to give CPR, but I did long time ago. There was a man having a heart attack. And I remember that I did pray, and I was raised an atheist. So I remember very vividly, like, oh, my God, don't let this person die. And it stuck with me, yeah. Yeah. And then where are you from yourself? I'm born in India, and, uh, but I came here when I was a very young girl, four years old, and I grew up here. Did you know that this was going to be a novel rather than a short story? How do you make that kind of a decision? Oh, that's a good question. 
Yeah, I think I did know it was going to be a novel. Um, the, it came to me first as her voice, and um, I think I, I think I knew. I think I wanted it to be a novel. I wanted it to be bigger. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, they want to hear you back. Okay, hold on. You got to be on the recording. We're doing this for the podcast. It's not just to be exciting. Does the character of Zoo, your husband, propel more parts of the story? Um, where, where, where does he come in again in the story, and, and how does he function? Oh, most definitely. When I talk about um, the conflict that she feels in the values. Uh, with him because he he's very much of the material world you know he's very much about finance and making money and getting ahead so he's another sort of antagonist in the story in the sense of she he wants a different kind of life than she wants and the more the story progresses the more that clarifies for her um, so he's a he's a big part of what propels her eventually in the novel. Yeah. Um, what other subjects were you interested in before you fell into creative writing, and does that ever motivate some ideas you have? So I started out in film, and I, as I said, I got my master's in film. And I, I think it does to the extent that I think as a writer I do sort of see things in, in scenes. Um, but the other thing that, I guess, subject, I mean, how do you come to your stories? You have to come to them through life experience. So I think just always um, being open to new, different experiences is definitely, I think, you know, I, I, I know some writers, you know, whatever happened in childhood, Flannery O'Connor is famous for saying that. You don't really need more than seven years on the planet to get a whole lifetime worth of material. Um, but for me, you know, I, I actually had a pretty happy childhood that doesn't give me a lot of good material. So I had to go after that and, and seek experience. Is that what you were asking me? Yeah, thank you. Do you have a business card? Do I have a business card? No, I don't. I am the worst self-promoter, and I will just say that right here. Wait, say that again? Don't, don't use me as a role model for promotion. No, I'm, I'm just actually a business Well, Are you a, uh, a teacher here? I am. I am. I do have a website. Okay. Did <laughs> I get that? Yes. All right. Questions in this zone while I'm here? Anybody? <laughs> uh, while you were writing this novel, what kind of research did you do in order to like paint the characters or did you just take it from real life experiences? Most of the research I did had to do around Hindu philosophy, really. I, I felt, you know, uh, I had a lot of 
reading that I did um, around Hindu philosophy, around the god Shiva, what he means, how he's represented. Um, in terms of the characters, I didn't do research. I just tried to imagine them as best as I could. I, I guess I did a little bit of research about Wall Street, but um, I mean, I just translated. I think you can translate experience into other situations. So I was married to a cinematographer, and I kind of knew the Hollywood world and how it worked. So I just translated that to Wall Street. I figured they'd be kind of the same, you know. It's all about money and power, and how much do you, more do you need to know? Um, so, yeah. Um, so, I remember you mentioned how you have to let your characters go through something that you would never want to happen to yourself. And I was wondering, were, were those particular events, like, did they have some sort of symbolic, like, the, the, the situations you put the character in, did they have some sort of, like, symbolic meaning related to your life? Because you also mentioned how you didn't know if many people would actually relate to the story. And then they happen to relate. So would you say there's, like, some sort of meaning by each event you place the character in? That's a good question. I mean, yes, definitely. Uh, that was, you know, I think the, the story, as I said, of, of a woman who has to determine her own destiny definitely came out of what I was going through at the time I was writing the novel which was, in essence, trying to escape my life as I knew it. You know, um, I just did it in a more conventional way than my character did. Um, but, yeah, I think the, the, um, uh, that idea of, you know, um, they, are, they are, I don't know if symbolic is the right word, but uh, hopefully there's something universal in it that, people then take and put their own life lives into. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and there were these, there are moments in the story, like with this woman who has the heart attack, who, who you know, I think there are people in your life, um, and, I, and I was thinking of, in her case, was more of someone I wished I had in my life, rather than somebody who was actually in my life. And it was the count, kind of encounter with a stranger on the street where it becomes so much more meaningful. And I think I always hope for that. You know, I always wish that you could have those. Because sometimes you see somebody and you just wish you could zoom right to what connects you as human beings. And it, so rarely happens, but um, but I think that desire is probably in all of us. And so when I let it happen on the page, I'm hoping that I'm tapping into that. Hi, Hi Julian. <laughs> um, do you have 
favorite writers who um, kind of inspired or directed or influenced your style and what you wanted to write? I mean, I definitely have favorite writers. Um, you know, I think uh, reading constantly informs my writing. I, I, I couldn't write if I didn't read. But in terms of my style, I would say the people I really admire, like, like Milan Kundera or this writer W.G. Sebald, I can't write like them. I just would fail so miserably. Um, but I admire them, and their, their ideas inspire me. And um, I admire Alice Munro so much, and I love her writing. But, you know, I really, I, I can't write like her. I can try, but, you know... Um, so, yeah, writing constant, uh, reading constantly. And so I've been teaching this class on 19th century novels. Um, and so I'm re I read Jane Eyre for the first time. And I, as I was preparing this, I could, oh, my God, I just retold Jane Eyre. It's just a story <laughs> about a woman trying to get control of her destiny. So, you know, in a way, like, there's, it, it's like you have to, I think you do have to find your own particular way of telling a story, but there's, there's so much literature out there to inspire. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in um, your writing process and the amount of editing that goes on, and I know that writing is rewriting. And did, you, um, did your story come out kind of formed the way it is? Or did you end up, you know, rewriting it totally differently? Or how, how, did, you, how did the editing process work for you? Well, it, in this case, it, the first draft came out really quickly for me. I'm a very slow writer, but I think I wrote the first draft in six months. It was very short. It was actually more like a novella than a novel. Um, but it was longer than a short story. Um, but... I, um, you know, it was an interesting process because I knew it wasn't quite, it had a very poetic, lyrical feel, but I knew it wasn't complete. So I started to sort of try and make it bigger. Like I didn't, you know, I was workshopping it. I was living back east at the time and I was workshopping it. I'm sorry, do I keep bumping it? Um, I was workshopping it, and um, but I was very unsure about it, and I hired an editor. And this is a story of how things can go wrong. He gave me all these notes, and it, the book ended up being really kind of fat. And, um, and I think there was one round of sending it out, and nobody was interested. And then I gave it to Jim to read, uh, and... He said, well, I really like it, but nothing happens in the middle. And I was like, oh, yeah. Um, so it made me understand that, that really, you know, this idea of uh, I have to keep raising the stakes. So I ended up trimming the book back down a lot and then kept raising the stakes. I kept try 
having things happen to my character that were really uncomfortable for me. And um, so there was a ton of rewriting. There were many, many, many drafts. I, I don't understand writers who get it in the first round. I mean, I know it happens, but I'm constant. Even on a daily basis, I'm rewriting. I'm going back sometimes to the beginning and tweaking sentences. And somehow it just, I think, gets me back into the voice of the piece. Yeah, Barry. Um, is the uh, girl Sanskrit writer an historical character, a real figure? The, the poet? Yes. Yeah, she's a real, she's a real, uh, she's, she's very much a real person, Akama Devi. She was a, uh, exactly as I say in the novel, she was a, po she's very revered. Her poetry is still recited. She's very revered in India. And in India, there is actually a tradition of, um, people taking the gods and writing love poetry to them. There's a whole genre of love poetry to gods. Could you recite a little of her poetry right now in Sanskrit? <laughs> Just a, a phrase? Sorry, she actually didn't write in Sanskrit. She wrote in Kannada. In a, it's a dialect of South India. I, I, can, I can barely say, well, I, I know a few chants in Sanskrit, but... I can't. <laughs> it seems like such a long and complicated process to write a book. Are you moving on into a new plot now? I am. I am. It, it, and I'm sorry if, I mean, it is for me, and I'm not sure it is for everybody, but it, for me, as I said, I, my approach is to really just jump into something. Something is compelling me. And then I have to figure it out as I go. So it is a long process, and I have started a new novel. Yeah. Do I like horror stories? No, I don't. I, I don't, no. <laughs> On the theme of mysticism, is this something that has grabbed you throughout your life, or is it just a side element of this story? I would say it was, uh, it was not, as I said, I was raised an atheist. I was raised that the scientific method is God. And um, it was really came later that I became curious about Hindu philosophy. And, and interestingly, my path to that was through my children's school, which was a Waldorf school, and Rudolf Steiner, who started those schools, was very interested in Eastern philosophy. And I mean, I had probably started before then, and I knew some of these stories, but that's really what sparked my interest, and I really um, followed it. Maybe maybe it's the last question. I'm not sure, but you write memoir and you write fiction based on real life, and then you write fiction. How do you decide what's going to go where? 
think I don't, I've never really set out to write memoir. I, I've written a couple essays, but my, I have a book of um, linked short stories that's very autobiographical. And um, I think I'm least comfortable in that, in autobiography. I'm most comfortable in actual fiction where I'm making up stuff and making up. There's always some basis in, in my own experience in life, but the, I teach a lot of memoir, and I really admire people who can write it. But for me, I'm more comfortable seeking that same kind of truth you might seek in memoir, seeking it in fiction. Um, I just, uh, yeah, it's just more what comes to me. Um, I think it's harder in a way to manipulate real life. <laughs> you know, you're, you're kind of stuck and limited to the facts. And it's harder, I think, to tell a compelling story with that. Time for a couple more questions. Any more questions? I may ask Manana um, a question. I have a question. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's right in front of me. Thank you. Uh, when you write in English, when we write in English, and we are trying to talk about people who don't speak English, um, how do you manage the language? I was thinking of your story, Ram Ram, uh -huh. where obviously the protagonist, the central character, knows, understands English, but she does not regularly use English at home. But now she's come to this country, and so she has to communicate with English. And she tells her story in English, so I wanted to know yeah. how you um, negotiate the language. That's a good question. Um... Again, I think it goes to the way I negotiated is try and hear the character's voice in my head and try and figure out how they would express themselves and then work with that. So I think in that story of a grandmother who comes to America for her um, granddaughter's wedding, I just tried to figure out what would her internal thoughts be like and then I force her to speak in English because that's really the only language I speak um, but and then you capture like just it's the only language I speak but I've been around Indian culture so much that sometimes I can hear the inflections and the ways of saying things or sometimes I think I know how it would be said and I'm just making that up, and I worry about that. I worry whether it's really authentic, but that's really what I go with. Manona, where can we read your stories? My short stories? Huh? Yeah, they're, um, uh, I've been fortunate to have been published a lot in the Santa Monica Review, which is the literary journal of the college, which I handed out to you guys last week. Um, so a lot of them are in the review. Some of them I've posted online 
on my website. Um, so that's really the best place to read them. I am trying to get a book of, it's a novel in stories. It's a linked short stories all about one family. So that's my next project that I'm trying to get published. That's finished, yeah. Well, is there another question? Oh. Um, on the topic of writing, you say that you, you, you normally write novels and short stories. What would you feel about web serials and uh, forms of writing that are like common on the internet for public view? That are, pardon what, for, for online? Yes. Um, like a blog or? I mean like a blog and uh, web serials. Um, yeah, I mean I don't, I, you know, I've, I've thought about blogs. Um, I think for me uh, that, I don't know, I only have so much energy and I feel like I'm going to put it into my novels when I can and um, I, I, I have a lot of students who write blogs, and it's been really interesting to watch how that in, has impacted their writing, because there's something about the short format that demands a, a different kind of writing than you would with a long format. And so I guess, I, I mean, I have nothing against it at all. Um, and I think it's great, but I just think it's not really for me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, I was supposed to be here at 11.15. I apologize to all of you, and I apologize to our guest. Um, I was very worried as I was coming to campus. I'd given enough time, but of course the traffic gods were against me. <laughs> I was very worried, but I should know that I should not be worried because the most important members are already here. The audience, you, and our writer, Mononawali, with the expert assistance of the media staff, the event staff, the community relations, Kirsten Elliott and her colleagues. So I need not have worried, but I still f feel bad that I missed a wonderful part of the presentation, most of it. Uh, I want to thank all of you for coming. Uh, this has been a terrific uh, series. It's a wonderful way to conclude the series with, with your writing, and you have shown up. It's because of you that this series continues to be possible. The SMC Associates continue to fund it. So I thank you again for coming, uh, and I thank Manana Wale for uh, sharing her work with us. Um, unexpected things happen in her fiction, and so do they in real life. <laughs> but art sustains us, both in the college and in the community. So I really appreciate uh, Manana for bringing members of the community to us because I've always wanted the literary series uh, to be open to all. And I know this hour is not convenient for most of us, for most of the people because of parking, uh, but I'm thankful for your presence. Uh, we are putting the finishing touches on next uh, semester series already, so I hope you will continue to come. Um, on behalf of the college, Manana, thank you for your 
uh, efforts and uh, patience and sharing your creativity with us. So this is a token of our appreciation. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you very much. I, yeah. And, and thank you for coming because it's really your continued uh, presence here that makes it possible for us to organize such wonderful events as, as Manana Wali's reading uh, this morning. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you all for coming.